Mm. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are at this moment. My name is Ali Amagasu, and this is Cloud Unfiltered. Today's guest is Cisco's own Shannon McFarland. He is a distinguished consulting engineer, and uh, we're thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome, Shannon. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Uh, I've certainly seen you speak before. I've enjoyed um, what you've had to say. I feel like you make complex technologies easy to understand, even for the marketing people, and that is a sought after skill I can imagine. Yeah, that's uh, it's always a fun mix. <laughs> so before we get into um, asking you what we're, you're really here for, uh, let's do what we always do and find out how you got into tech. Well, I think uh, a lot of people, you know, when you get asked that question, they'll say, well, I, you know, had a computer as a kid and, you know, I just grew from there. And, and I, I had uh, a friend's computer that uh, Commodore 64 way back uh, in the day, middle school each time. And, and uh, you know, tinkered around with that, but uh, I, I kind of left that stuff alone and didn't really do much with computers until uh, really the early 90s. And and I was doing, uh, after I got out of the army, I was working a couple of jobs while my wife was uh, also working and going to nursing school. And and so I'm like, there's got to be uh, something else that I'm I'm cut out for that I've got a skill set for. And so I actually went um, where we were living in Florida and I was actually paying per month for a computer. Uh, so this is like rent a computer in, wow. in the most uh, literal sense of that. And uh, so I just started learning like MS-DOS and my oldest brother, Ron, was kind of into computers then. And so I got some software from him. I don't tell anyone and uh, and was just like trying to learn everything that I could that could be learned on that little computer. And uh, we we uh, relocated to uh, Texas. And, uh, and started messing around with some networking at my best friend's father's business. And so I started uh, learning netware and some of that stuff while I was doing my normal job. And then fast forward, I actually found an entry level job at a hospital in Conroe, Texas. And it was an entry level job. That basically, you did everything you, you needed to do um, inside the hospital. So I got to learn to work in labor and delivery, like in labor and delivery, rebooting OS2 computers when they crashed and, uh, net, you know, netware and, and Microsoft NT and, uh, spent some time there and just landed upon an ad. Can you believe it? An actual ad in a newspaper, uh, for a company that would pay for your training. And I'm like, well, how, how good, you know, is this where you can actually get paid? Uh, plus get some free IT training. So I went to a, a reseller in in um, in Texas there, spent several years, some of the best years of my life, just getting thrown into the fire every day of learning messaging and operating systems and networking and security and voice. And, and I just had an amazing time with amazing people who were, who were super patient with me. And uh, from that job, I actually landed a job at Cisco in Colorado. Uh, as an SE, and I started there in uh, March of 2000, and I've been here ever since. That is a pretty cool pass. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it was different than many other people's, uh, I can tell you that, but it was uh, great. I wouldn't trade any of the uh, the sharp edges of that uh, that learning process for anything. And the question is, what happened to that kid that was lending you the computer back in middle school? Is he in the industry? Uh, no, uh, I, I lost uh, track of, of Lance way back when I uh, moved. I was living in Indiana at the time and moved to Texas. And um, after then, I, I lost touch with him. So I have no idea what he what he's doing. But uh, we had fun on the computer while, while I had it. So That's cool. That's an, I like that you weren't necessarily, you know, 
hands, uh, you know, up to your elbows, taking computers apart from the day you were born, that yep. uh, you actually kind of clawed your way in a little bit later and, and took advantage of opportunities that uh, other folks might have just passed right on by. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I was, I was kind of a, a late arrival in, into it from the sake of not just doing it through, you know, the, the course of being a kid, going through college for computer science or whatever, and entering the industry that way. I definitely had a slightly unorthodox entry into it. Awesome. Now, what, while you've been at Cisco, I know uh, that right now you're working on um, networking for the cloud, but what what were you doing prior to that? Have you just have you been in a number of roles? Um, yeah, absolutely. So so I started out with a couple of the first couple of years I was at Cisco as a channel SE covering Colorado, Wyoming and Utah, um, just uh, helping um, resellers uh, kind of understand Cisco products, how to sell them to their customers, etc. Um, and then I, I landed a job at uh, in kind of Cisco engineering slash marketing at that time in, in, a, in a group known as ESC or Enterprise Solutions Engineering. Um, and from there, that's where uh, Cisco uh, was writing what we badly named SRNDs, Solution Reference Network Designs. And these were the precursor to Cisco validated designs. And so the team that I worked on, we all had areas of, of expertise in campus or data center or WAN or quality of service or whatever. and, and um, and so I had taken a lot of stuff that I had done in the reseller world with voice and certainly uh, starting with Cisco with voice. And I started just kind of moving off of the voice realm deeper and deeper into the network. So uh, really started getting involved in, in really understanding high availability in campus and WANs. Um, and that just kind of took me from there into a whole wide range of, of other areas. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm probably most known for in, in the community is IPv6. Um, and so my uh, fantastic manager at the time, Todd Truitt, said, hey, there's this uh, new version of the Internet coming out. Do you want to learn something about it? And so I just started uh, you know, learning a little bit about IPv6. Um, at the same time, I was doing my other work, and, and that has just carried me through many other fields. So I've, I've, I've done protocol work, data center work, um, uh, you know, a lot of stuff in the application space, such as Microsoft Exchange or VMware, uh, you know, vSphere environments, and trying to always set the context of how applications meet the network and why those two things are really integral to one another uh, being, you know, successful um, if you did them right. And so that's kind of carried me through. And then about four years ago or so, I really uh, started getting into the cloud space via OpenStack. And uh, from there, I, you know, kind of moved into containers and multi-cloud networking, et cetera. So I've, I've definitely had several roles uh, covering several technologies, and um, and they've all been very educational. Yeah, I think the IPv6, I think that's a talk I went to where I saw you. Yeah, if you, if you saw me at uh, Boston, probably for the OpenStack Summit, that's probably one I was doing, yeah. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. Um, okay, so, so you did mention multi-cloud. And that you're, you know, I know you're involved in cloud networking right now. What does that even mean? What is, um, I mean, obviously we're a networking company, but cloud networking specifically, how is that special and different? And what are the needs associated with that? And how does it tie back to multi-cloud? Well, uh, you know, we've had this, this term hybrid cloud for a long time. And that is just simply having uh, connectivity between an enterprise data center environment uh, to a public cloud provider. And so that hy hybrid cloud networking um, takes on many forms. It, it can take on uh, using traditional IPsec VPNs that we've used for WAN technologies for a long time. It could take on um, a situation where you are linking your enterprise to your public cloud via a, a, a colo facility. 
um, and, and linking that through Ethernet or MPLS or some other technology. But what is really kind of, you know, hit a lot of our enterprises is that they are trying to find this balance between how much of what do I run in the public cloud versus what I run on my on-prem. And as they have matured through that life cycle of hybrid cloud, they're starting to find out that either based upon cloud provider high availability or regional requirements, that they probably also need to tie those workloads into other public clouds. And so multi-cloud networking is just simply the linking of multiple public clouds together and or multiple public clouds to your on-prem. And so it's kind of hybrid multiply times X number of, of public clouds. And so uh, the networking of it is not strange or different to anything that we've been doing for the last several years, but it does bring in uh, a lot of complexity to our enterprises when they have been fixated on a set of tools for a specific cloud provider. For example, their entire staff understands uh, Amazon Web Services with CloudFormation or something, right? Um, and now they're adding uh, Microsoft Azure or they're adding the Google Cloud Platform. And now it's a new set of tools, new set of terminology, and maybe even a new set of features in those clouds. And so what we're doing within uh, the Cloud CTO group here at Cisco is um, kind of replicating each of those various design models and multi-cloud networking and trying to figure out the friction and the pain points of, of how you deploy those uh, reliably and repeatably at each one of those public clouds and trying to uh, bring forth some, some recommendations and some best practices on how our enterprises can really make that linkage happen um, in a diverse set of regions around the world with a diverse set of applications running in them. Wow, that sounds like a lot to take on. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 uh, it, it is when you look at it as a whole, but when like any major technology uh, area, when you kind of slice it into one component and you really dig deep into it, and then once you understand that, you pull back and move to the next one. Um, after a period of time, you've painted a pretty elaborate picture of something that really looked confusing before. And that, that's, that's what we're spending time on right now is, is really looking at each of the components talking to our customers and understanding which of those components in their multi-cloud strategy are the most important first, um, and then just really trying to help understand their use cases. And, and after a while, um, it becomes second nature. I mean, at this point, I've spent enough time between three cloud providers uh, and on-prem data centers um, that I can fairly easily move between AWS and Azure and Google and vSphere, et cetera, um, and, and it somehow makes sense to me. So I, I guess it's, uh, it's you know, uh, just immersing yourself into that environment and you, you finally, you know, kind of understand the pain points that our customers are going through. So that's that's an important thing. What what are the challenges that are showing up? You said you're, you're talking with them and trying to find out where the friction is. Uh, what challenges are coming up and how are we able to address them or are we able to address them yet? Yeah, so I think, I think the first let's, I'll talk about the thing that, seems to not be bothering them. And that is just good old fashioned networking. Uh, the people understand because they've deployed WANs and that sort of thing, they understand connectivity quite well. They understand when you're doing IPsec VPN, um, what, what technologies and tool sets do you use? If you're using MPLS, they know that very well. Um, so straight up networking is not the problem they're having. The problem they tend to have is first around tool sets. Um, so these are the things that our customers would deploy um, to automate the way they engage um, their networking, their applications, their policies, et cetera, between their on-prem environment 
and their public cloud. Uh, so tool sets is, is probably one of the big ones because again, as I mentioned before, you may have a, cu uh, a customer that has done everything with AWS. So their entire skill set is around AWS uh, tool sets, the things that they're running on-prem, are they automating with Ansible or Terraform or something else? Uh, now all of a sudden someone comes along and says, guess what, we're adding Azure or we're adding Google to that portfolio. And guess what, those tool sets you were using before um, may or may not be the same. And so that's really where they're struggling is to automate repeatedly, securely and reliably these connectivity between multiple uh, public clouds, but trying to figure out the tool sets that allow them to, to get that done. And then this, so, the, so they've oh, become fluent. They've become fluent in Spanish, and now someone comes along and says, "You need to learn French as well." That's right. But and and so so there's there's kind of two parts to that. There is, do you go ahead and learn the other language, or do you go and hire somebody that translates for you for a period of time mm. until you can come up to speed? Or maybe you buy a translator that you never learned that second language. You keep speaking what you did, and you translate it over, right? And so that's where you're really starting to see that. A lot of our customers, instead of learning AWS CloudFormation and then uh, maybe uh, Google Cloud Platform Deployment Manager as a new tool, um, they'll actually back away from those native tool sets and they will use things like Ansible or Terraform or a combination of things so that they learn that one tool set and those tool sets can work on any of these other clouds. Um, that's a powerful thing that we have with the Clicker acquisition with Cloud Centers because they can look at Cloud Center and not all of these other native frameworks. They can work with Cloud Center, which works on their behalf. And so I think that people are starting to try to figure out, hey, relearning these over and over again um, in the native cloud environments themselves is just kind of a, a tough thing to do if you're going to do it a lot. That makes sense. So Cloud Center solves some of the problem for them, but I assume there are other uh, challenges they're coming up against. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, to, to close on the tool set thing, yeah. the problem of it is, is that no two customers want the same tool set the same way. Um, you may have some that are fine with with kind of piecing together three tool sets to do their job because their expertise and the, and the uh, flexibility of those tool sets works great. But then you may go to a commercial account that wants one pane of glass for literally every type of thing. And, and those single pane of glass tool sets in a multi-cloud world don't really exist very well. Mm. Uh, there's, they can do some things, but they're certainly not as, as diverse as, as many people need. So that's, that's an ongoing kind of issue that, that the industry is working through. Um, I think the second big thing that customers are trying to deal with is how and where to run their workloads. So you've had a lot of people, especially uh, in the early days of OpenStack that said, you know what? I was running bare metal or a vSphere or you know a, a Hyper-V environment, and now this thing public cloud came about, and and my uh, you know CFO and CIO and CTO said this is going to save the world, right? And they started moving all these workloads out to the public cloud, and then they found out it didn't necessarily save the world. In fact, it may have caused them problems because they rushed into it without proper planning. So they, they kicked off what I've been calling for the last uh, few years, a public cloud retraction, where they loved what they learned in public cloud. They loved the self-service provisioning, the elasticity, um, engaging in API so their developers can actually program against the infrastructure, not just the apps, but they want to do it on their own premises. They either do it for compliance 
Um, it's a tighter uh, uh, level of control for their their billing, and, et cetera, because it's a, it's a set amount of resources that they know that they can control. So they're bringing those workloads back on prem. Now they're starting to realize, hey, there is this real thing uh, that would allow me to go out and actually link these uh, environments together and maybe conditionally place parts of my workloads on-prem and parts of my workloads in the public cloud. So while that sounds amazing, it's very, very difficult to do in a reliable, secure uh, way, especially when you're moving into policies that stretch end to end. So things like our customers that may have deployed ACI, for example. So if they were working in an ACI environment on-prem and they understand policy, now they want to somehow stretch that policy construct to what they've got in their workloads in the public cloud. This is a very difficult thing to do because you do not have consistency. At some point, the policy ends and a new policy begins somewhere else. And so I think the, the second big point that customers are struggling with is how do I realize consistent policy regardless of location? I've got it nice and tight in my data center, but I don't have the same mappings or the same policy control in the public cloud. And so I, uh, this is a, yet again, uh, a big area where Cisco is focusing on, you know, things like ACI Anywhere and, and many other things uh, that are going on in the industry where we can have consistent policy uh, regardless of location and even regardless of, of cloud provider. This is, I think this is gonna be a big area over the next couple of years. All right. That is very interesting. So, so far you've, you've introduced two very challenging uh, issues and I don't know if we have answers, really answers to them or not, or if they're just things you're working on, but is there another one you wanna bring up before I badger you about whether you have answers to the first two? Sure, yeah, so the third one I think is, uh, is really dealing with um, applications in a way that are no longer siloed. Um, so one, you know, common thing that we we have seen over the last several years is I took this very old kind of clunky siloed legacy application, and one of the very first things people did is like, hey, I can realize some benefits um, through cost and and ease of management and ease of deployment by moving those out of bare metal into virtual machines. Okay, we we've done that, you know, way back when. So we started virtualizing machines, virtualizing networking, virtualizing storage. And then we have kind of moved to programmatically controlling those things through private and public clouds. So API driven frameworks that allow us to go and configure those things through API. So that, that was another big winner for us. Um, the next one is now of those workloads, can I either build them cloud native or convert them from virtual machines to containers? So now we're kind of crossing into what applications are good from a from a applicability and a performance and a lifecycle perspective um, of being inside of a container environment. Now what we're seeing is customers are are now tempted to stretch those things across multiple different areas. So it kind of goes back to that second one around policy, but this one is really about how do you deploy and manage your applications. Um, so I think the third one is, you know, in the world of, of Kubernetes, for example. Um, can I have Kubernetes pods existing on-prem and some of those pods be stretched, maybe a federated Kubernetes type of environment where it's a single looking Kubernetes, but it actually exists in Google and exists in my, uh, my on-prem environment. And how do I manage uh, the placement and, and the, the deployment of those applications? And so this is a big area for us. And I think you had uh, uh, Stephen Dake on uh, uh, you know, at some point 
about uh, talking about uh, this concept known as Istio, which is a service mesh. Um, and this is just, you know, kind of a, a quick intro to it is the ability to dynamically discover the services and inject uh, layer four through seven security and placement and high availability of those, excuse me, of those services, regardless of their location. So kind of crossing into that, that next problem space is how do we help customers transition from these kind of legacy bare metal to virtual machine to container to stretched application environments uh, across a multi-cloud environment. And so, um, you know, you, you'll ask me, are we tackling these problems? And, and I can, uh, you know, talk about how we're, how we're addressing some of them, but, but it's very much all of these are, are kind of an in-progress uh, bit of work in, in, in the industry. Okay. Yes, that is exactly what I want to ask you. I mean, I, I, I agree with you on the, the points you've um, brought up. And it's interesting to hear what you're saying, you know, to hear what you're hearing from customers about what their biggest, what their biggest challenges are and what they want the cloud to do versus what it, what it can do right now. Um, what kind of detail can you share with us? And I'm sure there's parts you can't share, but what can you share about kind of where Cisco's making breakthroughs? What kind of technological improvements are we making that um, are going to address either number challenges one, two, or three? Yeah, I, I think the uh, I, I'm not privy to the consistent policy model. I mean, that's not a space that uh, that I know and work in well. So, so I'll, I'll kind of uh, let you go talk to the ACI folks <laughs> or someone else about uh, what they're doing to to present in uh, a consistent policy model there. Um, but, but I can talk about the the um, the issue around you know the the tools issue. So it, it is very consistent that it's inconsistent what people tell us right so it's it's a, you can go and talk to a customer at one point and then you can meet with them three months later and their request for uh tool sets in a multi-cloud environment has have rapidly changed right and 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 so that's because um again a lot of customers don't know what they don't know yet when it comes to multi-cloud they right. know and then they very, find out and they say oh well i want this too now yeah, yeah, and so and and so what they'll tend to do is gravitate to what they know, right? And so if if they already have a set of tools that um, allows them to add a new public cloud provider into it, something like a Terraform or many other tools that are out there, it allows them to say, okay, we already know this. Now all we need to know is the target environment, so they can build that target environment by hand, so that they know the order of operations that their automation has to go through. Once they get that figured out, then they just roll that automation into the tool set that they have. And, and that is the absolute best possible environment you can have is where you have a uh, almost a target independent tool set that allows you to plug in things um, via that automation. And you're not necessarily bound to what a specific cloud provider or even a, an on-prem provider is, is dealing with. Um, the challenge is those customers that are always using native tool sets, and, and I use the native tool sets too. I'm, I'm not, not dinging those because they're very, very rich for the environment that you're using them. But a lot of our customers are, are trying to come up with home remedies to automating each one of these target environments, and, and they're just they're really struggling. So what we're trying to do uh, at Cisco, especially the, the stuff that I'm doing for the Cisco Live Talks that I got coming up, I got a, a multi-cloud talk uh, that, that kind of addresses some of these specific issues, is walking customers through the process of 
first, you got to figure it out. You've got to know what the target environment is, how to build it by hand. And a lot of people hate that, but you can't know how to automate something if you don't understand the order of operation of what that target environment ex expects. So build it by hand, understand the design components, understand the things that can really trip you up and then automate it. Um, and so uh, a part of what we're doing is we're, we're helping customers, for example, uh, deploy CSRs at each one of the public clouds and build the networking and the security groups and the custom routes and all of those types of things using the native cloud tools and then kind of helping the customer understand, is this good enough for you? If not, then let's go take a look at some other automation framework. Maybe we can come in and say, you don't need a diverse number of of target environments, maybe you can use Cloud Center, or maybe if you are, are using Ansible or Terraform or something else, uh, maybe that's good enough. And so that's that's part of what Cisco is trying to do is kind of independently help our customers first understand the design and two, kind of help walk them through the process of taking that design and realizing it in an automated way. And so this is something that we're, we're right in the middle of right now. Um, stuff that, that you'll see in Barcelona and Melbourne and Orlando this year, um, you'll definitely start to see uh, quite a bit of work in this space and, and helping customers tackle that item number one. Is there kind of a tiger team or a, a group that gets deployed to to go physically help these customers? Or um, how do they deal that? Do you just, you just kind of explain to them what needs to be done and pat them on the head, tell them good luck? And Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a multifaceted approach, right? There is like a part of the multi-cloud strategy that Cisco has is one of them is known as cloud advisory. And this is the ability to have that team that, that can come in and, and really kind of help understand what it is that the customer is trying to do and then walk through the process of helping them get that done in an automated way. Um, there's also... Uh, approaches that many of us across a cloud CTO and other teams at Cisco, for example, the cloud center team, uh, where, uh, you know, like I'm working on cloud VPN uh, as a focal point. And so I can go in and, and look at things like dynamic multipoint VPN with IPsec and BGP and OSPF and all of these designs of linking on-prems to, to public clouds, working through that by hand and then uh, going and talking to the cloud center team and say, okay, let's look at these areas where we can automate those types of things. And so uh, I think it just depends on uh, if the customer is is ready to push the, the go button now, they may engage with the cloud advisory or one of our channel partners to, to help with that. Uh, but if it's more uh, kind of, you know, we've got a complex one-off problem, then we're probably going to have to spend some time uh, specifically with that customer across multiple teams to kind of understand that problem statement. Yeah, it sounds like each of these is custom. And what's interesting to me is when you say customer, I don't think of customers being a whole company always. I think that, that often it's, you know, a line of business. Yep. It's an organization within a company. So sometimes you're only solving that problem for an organization, not even the entire company. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that goes back to that first problem of tools, because you may actually be working with a newly formed cloud ops team um, that is in charge of uh, making their way into a new cloud provider. And so they're trying to figure out how do they get credentials and billing and, and you know, basic services and templates for virtual machines up. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, now we're ready to link this cloud with our on-prem environment. Let's go deploy a VPN. Well, guess what? That's probably not their space. There's a network WAN or a DC ops team that has always controlled 
the linkage of networking from the enterprise to any other place, whether it be the internet or branch office, et cetera. And so now you've got automation and skill sets in the cloud ops team that now need to include stuff from a traditional net ops or DC ops team. Um, and now they're either incongruent with their automation strategy or one wants to take control of the other. Um, and so that becomes a very interesting thing is because you may be working with people from a line of business, as you, you mentioned, that now depend upon another team uh, to go get that final piece uh, of, of the networking done. And so that that becomes very interesting because, uh, you know, I, I, most of my career at Cisco, the customers that I've worked with have been very focused networking folks. Um, and now you may have people that you know care about apis and care about automation and care about public cloud they don't really care about cloud networking per se and so now you've got to relearn the way you communicate with them because it is a totally different language that they're speaking and so i think that's a that's a problem for for you know cisco and other vendors in the industry is to understand that you're no longer talking to the same people that you probably were when you were selling routers and switches um, you've got to still talk that language because that stuff is still very critical to making it a success. Uh, but you also now have to kind of uh, expand your skill set and your language uh, to, to be able to, you know, bi-directionally communicate with these other teams. Interesting. That that sounds really, really challenging. And I bet from the customer's point of view, it's challenging too. Um, I mean, it sounds like the processes and kind of the organizational, the culture change is probably just as hard as sorting out the technology? Well, it's, yeah, it's, if I rewind back to the late 90s, early 2000s with, you know, voice over IP and IP telephony, it's that kind of change, right? It's where, um, you know, you were talking to somebody that, that was running, uh, you, know, a, you know, a Nortel or, or an Avaya or, or, you know, some other PBX system. And, and we're coming in as, as you know, the, the new folks talking voice to people when we were data people, right? And so it's it's very much that way as customers very rapidly try to adopt a cloud strategy, they are hiring people that have that language, but their homegrown skill sets inside of, of their environment and even the people selling to them um, don't yet have that skill set. And so it is a, it is a an, an opportunity for friction, let's put it that way, when uh, you're in trying to talk about traditional networking and how you easily stretch it to a, a public cloud or to multiple public clouds. And these people are, are from the cloud ops team are saying, nope, that's not the way we do it over here. Um, and so it's a, it's a very interesting uh, uh, space to be in when you kind of got to be able to, you know, glue all those pieces together. Man, I feel for these customers. If you, you know, you just mentioned they're, 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 there's a rush. They're, they're rushing in. They're trying to figure out how to, how to do this right, how to execute on their cloud initiative correctly, how to connect their data center with the differing public cloud services they may be using. What would you say is the most common mistake or, or a handful of common mistakes that these guys make and 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 that they should avoid if, if for anyone who's listening right now who is you know, wrangling a cloud initiative? Yeah, I, I think the first one is uh, you know, pause and go through the due diligence to understand why you're doing it. Um, don't do it for cost. Don't do it because you don't want a bunch of racks and blinking lights inside of your data center. If you're, those are the reasons you're doing it, you're going to get burned and you'll come back to those same things that you hate. Um, so, so you need to, to pause a little bit. And, and it's really difficult when everybody's trying to keep a competitive advantage to pause or even slow down. But it's much smarter for you to take bite-sized chunks in your, your movement towards 
a, a hybrid or multi-cloud type of environment than it is to rush and retract and rush and retract and make all of these mistakes over because it's really going to slow down uh, your efforts at the end. Um, the, the second uh, big thing that I would, I would think that, that people really tend to suffer from um, and, and they should really understand thoroughly, and that is don't rush to automate everything. Um, understand the design principles of what it is that you're trying to do and even you know, carve off a proof of concept and do those things by hand. And, and people that are, that are in DevOps and those types of environments hate doing that sort of thing. But it's very, very difficult for you to safely, reliably, and repeatably automate things if you don't understand the design principles under them. So a lot of people will just immediately rush in, let me go read all the APIs, let me make a bunch of REST calls, go, go, go. And they have messed up BGP, they have screwed up IPsec, they have, have not done high availability properly. They, they just have rushed to automation for speed, but they didn't really comprehensively build a good design that, that kind of supports that level of automation. So, so kind of pause, slow down, focus on, on what it is that you're doing this, uh, this for, um, and really understand the design principles before you automate. Those would probably be the big two things that I would uh, I would tell any customer alive. That's good advice. Now, when you said that um, that you wouldn't rush into this to save money or to have fewer blinking boxes in your data center, what are the good reasons then? Well, it, it goes back to um, some of the reasons why people kind of move from bare metal to virtual machines. They, they move for that, not just because they wanted to save floor space on a bunch of bare metal servers. Um, they, they did that to realize um, speed of deployment. If I can have a bunch of uh, templates or virtual machines saved in my environment, I can roll those things out in mass and destroy them very quickly. Cloud brings the same types of things only not just for basic elements of storage and virtual machines, but the entire stack. It allows me to very quickly and programmatically engage at every tier uh, of my entire stack, all the way from provisioning resources, whether they be networking, storage, virtual machines, containers, security policies, you name it, they can programmatically get there. So I think that API-driven elasticity, a self-service provisioning type of mindset are the things you want to gravitate towards on cloud, not cost. Cost may come with it, but cost may never be a part of your, your top five or even top 10 reasons why you're doing cloud. And so um, the, those really uh, you know, operating um, in an agile state uh, that's repeatable, reliable, and secure, those are the, those are the reasons why you wanna kind of move uh, towards a cloud environment. Nice, nice. Now, this is actually gonna be looping around and going back to something we were talking about about 10 minutes ago, but it's a question that's been bothering me. When you're talking about the three challenges that customers are up against and you're saying how there's a group that wants um, uh, a, a single pane of glass to kind of manage everything that they're doing. And you said there is no single pane of glass or, or that it's at least challenging. Is, is that coming or should people get over that idea when managing a hybrid or multi-cloud environment? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say it's not coming, um, I, and but I'm no fortune teller. I don't own products. I'm not in marketing or sales, so I have no idea what someone's going to inject on a roadmap at some point. Uh, but but uh, I have spent my entire technology career working with customers, and every single case that someone has asked for a single pane of glass to run every aspect of their environment 
it's either it's either uh, failed miserably or it just never could uh, live up to the operational and structural requirements a customer has. I mean, the reality that we're facing now in a cloud environment goes back just a few minutes ago when I was talking about the difference between a cloud ops and net ops and DC ops teams. They work with their tool sets. So yes, they may all agree that it is this single pane of glass from an application perspective, but the way they engage with that tool, the way they consume that tool and the way they automate the things that go into and out of that tool are not at all the same. And so while we went, I mean, I myself have asked, you know, CTOs of, of very large companies and said, okay, if you had a single pane of glass that would run everything, would you use it? And they absolutely said, no way. Um, it, it's, it's either uh, because it, it creates a dependency uh, on a vendor or creates a dependency on a tool set that I have to wait for a vendor or someone else to add capabilities to it when I need to move faster in a specific area. Um, and so I, I just don't think that the 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 discussion of the you know the big red easy button for all things dealing with with hybrid or multi-cloud um, is a reality. And, and somebody may prove me wrong, and that's great. But I just you know years and years of doing this, um, I don't think people want it, and I don't think someone um, you know from a vendor or even the open source world can do a good job of providing all the features, functionalities in a scalable and more importantly, uh, high feature velocity way that our customers would use. Because that's really what we've got to come to terms with in this cloud space, and that is pace. Um, people want things faster and faster and faster. And what they don't have patience for anymore, and this was actually one of the biggest uh, selling points for OpenStack within the community, is that in an open source way, when you've got a lot of people contributing to code, Comcast, who wants a specific feature, doesn't have to go to a vendor and wait 18 months for the feature. Comcast can bring that feature that they cared about into the community for the rest of the world to use. And, and we have pivoted in that direction and we won't turn back. Um, I, I think the, the impatience that customers have for getting features to them that really matter to them, um, they're growing less and less patient with that and they're gravitating more and more towards open source type of areas where if a vendor doesn't give it to me, I will work with someone who will do it on my behalf or I will write it myself. And I, I think that's something that, that the whole world to include customers, partners, and vendors have to, have to deal with. Yeah, that resonates. I mean, I came from, from MetaCloud before Cisco acquired us and that list of features and functionality that customers wanted uh, never got shorter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> feature, still... velo yeah feature velocity never shrinks. It, it, it just, you know, get, it, it just goes faster and faster. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, OpenStack, and it's certainly relevant as I think about trying to, you know, connect our various clouds, the public and the private. Are most companies that are doing in-house uh, clouds using OpenStack or what are they doing yeah, I mean, these days? OpenStack is very, very popular in a lot of customers. I mean, I, I've been working with it uh, for, for quite some time now. And, and while it, it's, you know, it's gotten beat up in the public, it's gotten beat up in certain public clouds. And, and a lot of enterprises that maybe had a proof of concept for it said it was, it was a little too developer heavy for what their shop could support. Uh, but boy, there's there's still a boatload of, of customers out there that, that know and, and work with and love their OpenStack. Uh, I think what, what's interesting with OpenStack is that 
you, you've had uh, customers that went down towards, uh, you know, to a, a virtualization strategy that they had, and, that, and that's a rock solid strategy if that's really what, what your end goal was, um, where you wanted to virtualize your storage and, and your networking and, and your, your virtual machine type of things. Uh, but it did not reveal again those top ticket items that people love about cloud, elasticity, self-service provisioning, API, top to bottom, not software development kit from, from a northbound environment that only reveals 10 or 20% of the total capabilities of the system. OpenStack brought self-service provisioning, elasticity, and API driven through the entire stack. And I think that customers that understood that in the public cloud wanted that same type of model in the private cloud. And I think it's still the de facto standard for on-prem top to bottom API driven private cloud. And, and I don't see um, a, another IaaS like OpenStack kind of coming in and, and, and replacing that. Now, people may bypass that completely, right? They may go from a, a bare metal or a server virtualized environment and go straight into Kubernetes and bypass this traditional IaaS thing that may be in the middle. Um, or they may use that IaaS to place their Kubernetes deployments on top of to get you know, multi-tenancy, et cetera. Uh, but but I think for OpenStack inside of of the private cloud, it's it's probably still the best choice out there. That's what I was going to ask. What you just brought up, um, what what does a customer lose if they go straight if they pass OpenStack and just go straight to Kubernetes? Well, again, it it has to do with the workloads they want to run, right? I mean, there's there's definitely I mean, Kubernetes is fantastic. It's what I I spend my outside of cloud networking. I'm linking Kubernetes on each end of a pipe somewhere. That's that's what I do each day, right? And so so I'm I'm a huge Kubernetes fan, but it doesn't do all things for all people at all the time, right? Um, so uh, if if there's going to be this environment where a customer wants to cloudify, if that's a word, uh, their traditional server virtualized environment, um, so they still need virtual machines, but they want to add containers alongside that. They want natural multi-tenancy. Uh, they want API driven for network storage, compute, et cetera. Um, they're probably going to slide OpenStack in in that that life cycle step. They're going to go from bare metal or server virtualization to an OpenStack type of IaaS, and then they'll probably plop down Kubernetes on top of it, and then maybe one day they'll you know they'll transfer off to that. But if they can write day one cloud native applications that run in Kubernetes pods, and they can do that right now, they're probably going to bypass that IaaS step with OpenStack entirely. And I've, I've worked with many customers that have kind of tried to make that split decision between, do I go ahead and go down the OpenStack path for a period of time and, and, and then add a Kubernetes on top of it? And a lot of them went through that proof of concept and just said, you know what? We've got a very good vSphere, Hyper-V, system center type of environment, and it's doing everything that we need to do in, in that world. And our cloud native applications that we want to build from scratch or, or you know, move to, um, we're just going to plop them down on top of Kubernetes and kind of miss that open source private cloud step in the middle. So it's not a clean answer. It's a really, if, you know, it depends type of thing. Uh, but I, I, I definitely see both and I see more and more Kubernetes native implementations come uh, instead of OpenStack as that interim step more and more as Kubernetes begins to, to evolve, have you know, better capabilities and customers become more aware of it. Is that more with companies that are born in the cloud or are there actually like big legacy enterprises doing that too? 
Yeah, I think, well, I think uh, there are, it's, it's both. It's certainly, if you're, if you're born in the cloud, you're probably not going that open stack step, right? I mean, if you're a, a up and coming and I've got several friends that are in the startup space that they are, they went, you know, running a developer's uh, environment local with, you know, with Vagrant or something like that with a local, local Kubernetes deployment on their machine. And then they are deploying Kubernetes in the public cloud. There is no on-prem and there is nothing in the middle uh, that they're, they're working with like OpenStack. Uh, but you can have, you know, I, I do quite a bit with the energy world and, uh, and there are absolutely some of the world's largest energy customers that are, are trying to make that step where they're going from their traditional line of business, data center, you know, virtual machine type of environment. And then anything that's new that they're coming on, that they're developing as a cloud native application, it is sitting on Kubernetes. That's, uh, uh, that's pretty much where they're going or, or, you know, they're, they're a Docker swarm shop, something like that. But they're, they're kind of saying, you know, we don't really need this, this interim step uh, for OpenStack, um, uh, you know, uh, to be deployed. And again, it also has to do with what is it that their goals are for that application. For example, if they want several deployments of Kubernetes per line of business or per service, um, and they want to do it in a multi-tenant way, they're going to find out very quickly that, that is a, that's a difficult uh, uh, a prospect to do in a native Kubernetes environment today. So they, I've seen customers actually go down the path of only deploying a Kubernetes environment for cloud native, realize that it actually needs to sit on something that abstracts the resources for them. And then they come back, deploy OpenStack, sit Kubernetes on top of that. And then they get all that natural, uh, you know, multi-tenancy type of functionality from it. So I've actually seen it work the other way where they go from kind of, you know, this, this virtualized environment straight to Kubernetes, realize that they probably should have had this, this other step in the middle um, and actually go back and, and, and deploy uh, OpenStack with it. These customers that are trying to sort this out right now, they're trying, they, you know, okay, I've got a public cloud here, I got another one here, we've got our yep. data center over there. Uh, we're trying to bring it all together. Should they even be thinking about serverless right now? Or should they just, you know, kind of keep their eyes on what's in front of them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, there should always be, no matter what size, I don't care if it's the, the individual that is the janitor and the IT admin, so somebody should always be looking at the what's next. Right. I mean, of of okay, do can I have the the opportunity to really skip um, coming from where I I have lived in a in a server virtualized environment? And again, that's a, a wonderful environment for the workloads that you have there. I most of my lab is sitting on on those types of environments. Um, they can keep a hold of that, and they need to be looking at all of the options available to them before they take that next step. So. Um, should I be doing OpenStack and then Kubernetes on top, or should I be uh, going to serverless uh, in the public cloud side? It really is the responsibility uh, of every customer to have someone or a team of people that are always reviewing these next things. Um, and I think serverless is, is no different than what it was when uh, OpenStack was coming on the scene. And it was no different than when Docker introduced, what, you know, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the massive, uh, quantity of change they introduced into the environment with Docker and you know Docker Enterprise and Swarm, et cetera. All of that has matured the market radically. Um, and I think serverless may have the opportunity to do something similar to that. So people can't just assume that, 
okay, I'm focused on Kubernetes. This is the only life I'll ever live. Because I promise you there will be another thing that comes along that will radically change the what you're doing. And so I think serverless is, is one of those things that you got to look at, look at its maturity, look at its applicability. Does its the end result serve your needs as the customer? And if you're not doing that, then you're probably going to go through these life cycle churns for very costly, very lengthy periods of time uh, when you might have actually been able to grab a hold of something early that really saved you a lot of time and money. That sounds like good advice. Shannon, you're not going to believe this, but we're already out of time. I feel like I barely even started asking you really about what's going on under the covers as far as multi-cloud. Um, but I'm hoping I can have you back in the future to get a little bit more of a, a technical deep dive on that. Absolutely. If, if there's uh, anyone that knows me, they know I talk loud and fast and uh, can talk about all kinds of nonsense. So I'd be glad to come back. I appreciate that. Hey, I don't know if this we're going to wind up publishing this before or after the upcoming Cisco Live in Barcelona. But uh, regardless, um, can you uh, rattle off a few sessions you're going to be at? Do you know the dates? Yeah, so I will uh, have sessions uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at Barcelona next week um, at Cisco Live. One of them is a multi-cloud uh, networking talk. Uh, I think it's BRKCLD3440, if I remember the number right. Um, and then I'll be, uh, again, uh, I am always love being in the DevNet uh, environment, so I'll be doing some stuff with my good friend Charles Eckel on, on uh uh, DevNet 1211, I think, is our OpenStack workbench where people can come and sit down at a computer and we will do hands-on OpenStack deployments and uh, and automation and all kinds of fun stuff. So it, uh, that's always a, a great environment and I, I love to be in DevNet. So it's uh, I'm looking forward to it. Nice, nice. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing you know, your point of view on what's going on and, and your insights into some of what our, our customers are facing challenge-wise. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are dealing with exactly these things. So um, I appreciate you talking through, uh, you know, what they are, what the challenges are, and what some of the potential solutions are. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, if anyone wants to f uh, follow you on Twitter, are you active on social media at all? I am, and it's uh, my old school love IPv6 at i e y e p v6. Very clever, my friend. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, I really do look forward to having you back and, uh, and to seeing you at um, Barcelona. Very good. Thanks a lot. All righty. Bye-bye.